Twelve Byzantine Rulers by Lars Brownworth. Episode 10, Heraclius. Welcome back. Last time we talked about the Emperor Justinian, whose 38-year reign saw such momentous reconquests and achievements, and whose death left the empire far larger, but almost impossible to hold. Few of his successors were able to duplicate the delicate balancing act needed to maintain peace with the empire's many enemies, and soon found themselves floundering, able only to retreat on every front. Of Justinian's reconquests, Africa was by far the most stable, Spain was virtually ignored, and Italy fell victim to its own intrigues. According to legend, the eunuch Narses, having recently completed the reconquest, had been recalled and humiliated by the Empress Sophia, muttering before he left, I'll tie her a knot she won't undo in her lifetime. He then invited the Lombards into Italy, starting a long and bitter war that over the next few years would cost the empire most of the land of its birth. Such petty feuds would drain and frustrate subsequent emperors, making a difficult job nearly impossible. Justinian's successors were neither as wise nor as forceful as he was, and all too often would compound their problems by trading his unpopular but necessary decisions for the temporary favor of the crowd. These short-sighted policies had predictably disastrous results, and within a generation brought the empire to the very edge of collapse. For the most part, in dealing with hostile neighbors, the emperors after Justinian made one of two mistakes. The first was to spend their way to peace. This tended to weaken the army, neglected as it was, and bankrupt the state. Succeeding emperors, finding the treasury empty, tended to err in the other direction, and talk tough while slashing the military budget to cut costs. The result was often military disaster and mutinous soldiers, until the army, tired of broken promises and no pay, rose up and put one of their own candidates on the throne. The man they chose was a 55-year-old non-commissioned officer named Focus. He has somewhat kindly been described as a sadistic monster, and that, combined with his insecurity on the throne, led to a bloody, disastrous reign. He had problems almost immediately. The Persians, and even some of the Byzantine field commanders, refused to recognize him, leaving him no choice but to patch up a hasty peace in the Balkans and transfer most of his troops back to the Persian front. The great king Khosros, using the killing of the former emperor as a pretext, broke the peace treaty and invaded, completely routing the disorganized army focus sent against him. The emperor, who in the meantime had occupied himself with killing every possible claimant to the throne, was enraged by this loss and ordered the army back into the field. When another commander surrendered on the promise of safe conduct, he had him burned alive. The Balkans, now completely devoid of troops, was invaded almost instantly, and the Persians, unopposed, swept further into Byzantine territory, taking all of Mesopotamia and Armenia. Other parts of the empire fared just as poorly. The Lombards continued their relentless conquest of the Italian peninsula, while the Visigoths were poised to swallow what was left of imperial Spain. Then the plague hit, leading to famine. Riots broke out in the streets of the capital, and trade sank to almost nothing. The citizens had had enough. It was only a question of who would revolt first. The answer was Africa, virtually the only area of the empire that had an army and wasn't fighting for its life. The governor of the province, a man named Heraclius, stopped the grain shipments, crippling the capital and making the famine even worse. Feeling himself too old to be adventuring, he then sent his 36-year-old son, also named Heraclius, with a navy to seize Egypt. From there, the sun gathered a massive army and embarked for Constantinople. For Phocus, the situation had gotten even worse. 
The army he had sent against Heracles had been defeated by an ally, and most of the survivors had defected. The Persians had invaded Cappadocia, coming within sight of Constantinople itself, sending ripples of panic throughout the streets. All remaining order broke down, with blues and greens slugging it out in the streets, and the riots only intensifying as most anticipated the end of the empire. It was not an unreasonable conclusion to come to. The Slavs and Avars ranged unchecked through the Balkans, the Persians were on the doorstep, and virtually all of the rest of the disintegrating empire was in the hand of rebels. Deserted by his troops, in a last attempt to defend himself, Phocas put the blues and greens in charge of defense of the capital. They, however, were more interested in fighting each other, and with the empire on the verge of financial, political, and military collapse, a mob seized Phocas and brought him to Heraclius' ship, newly arrived in the harbor. Is this how you governed, wretch, Heraclius is reported to have said when they met? Will you, Phocas replied, do any better? It would have been hard to do worse. Phocas had been a disaster on almost every front, leaving the empire prostrate and surrounded by enemies. Even worse, he had introduced the mutilations and torture which would become so distressingly familiar in Byzantine history. The empire had lost roughly half its territory and incurred debts that the remaining half was unable to pay. The only surprising thing was that he managed to last for eight years. At 36, he had thick, curly blonde hair, a muscular figure, and though he wasn't really an army man, a sharp military bearing. Together with his beautiful wife Eudocia, he was crowned emperor in a dazzling ceremony. But his greatest attribute, though unknown at the time, was, perhaps more than any other Byzantine emperor, an ability to inspire others, even in the most desperate situations. The empire had great need of this, for despite all the pomp and splendor of the imperial couple, there was a sense of impending doom. The capital itself was safe for the moment, but the rest of the empire was falling away. Italy was just managing to hold out against the Lombards, and the Balkans were gone to the Slavs. Worse yet, the Persians were still unchecked in Asia, and a new emperor on the throne did nothing to change that. Each passing day brought worse news. Greece fell to the Slavs, Thrace fell to the Avars, then most devastating of all, the Persians conquered Jerusalem, capturing the true cross and instruments of the Passion. Killing all the male citizens, they sold the rest into slavery, leaving the holy city almost deserted. Still unopposed, two years later they turned to Egypt, depriving the empire of its main source of bread. The end clearly seemed at hand. The enemy was at the gates, the Persians captured and garrisoned Chalcedon just across the water from the capital, and the loss of Egypt and Thrace resulted in famine. Heraclius decided to abandon the capital and move it to his native Carthage in Africa. This decision made some strategic sense, but more importantly it united the entire population as horrified they implored him to stay, getting him to agree only after they had made a solemn vow to accept whatever sacrifice he would demand. Having procured this important concession, many expected the emperor to march out at the head of an army and confront the Persians. Heraclius, however, did nothing, or so it must have seemed. He came to the throne in 610, and yet he waited 12 years till 622 to begin campaigning. The reasons for this delay were rather obvious. He lacked experienced officers, disciplined troops, and most of all, money. The empire was bankrupt, unable to pay even the reduced salaries of its soldiers. Since he had such a great need for an efficient army, he first reorganized the military, trusting in the safety of Constantinople's walls to keep the enemies at bay. In the process, creating the medieval Byzantine army, he gave the outlying provinces increased importance, 
For a limited salary, the frontier soldier was expected to present himself for duty armed and mounted. No longer would the empire be dependent on the notoriously expensive and unreliable mercenaries. Heraclius' system was to be the backbone of the army for the next 800 years. The next crisis to attend to was the financial one. To restore solvency to the empire, he depended on taxes, forced loans, heavy fines, and for the first time, the church. The patriarch Sergius, recognizing the desperateness of the situation, had, in an impressive display of patriotism, pledged the entire wealth of the church and turned over an immense quantity of gold and silver plate to the emperor. This was made all the more extraordinary since Eudocia, the empress, had died, and Heraclius, violating several laws, not to mention commandments, had recently married his niece Martina. Overlooking this obvious error in favor of the greater good, the patriarch made his donation, temporarily solving the financial woes of the empire. By the spring of 622, Heraclius was ready for the Persians. His one advantage was the control of the sea, and he used it to its full extent. The Persians, who expected him to march along the land route, were taken completely by surprise when he landed at Issus, where Alexander the Great had defeated Darius almost a thousand years before. He spent the summer drilling his troops and improving morale, determined not to engage the enemy until he could be sure of victory. It was a desperate gamble. If he were defeated and captured, then all hope for the empire was lost. The odds were certainly not in his favor. The first emperor to personally lead his troops into battle in almost 200 years, he had never before commanded a field army. His only previous experience had been sailing into Constantinople to depose Phocas, and that had been more like a homecoming cruise than a military operation. His opponent, by contrast, was Sharbaraz, conqueror of Egypt and widely considered the Persians' greatest general. To the surprise of everyone involved, except perhaps Heraclius, the Byzantines scattered the Persians, according to one source, like a herd of goats. Morale skyrocketed. The Persians were not invincible after all. The army wintered in Cappadocia without a complaint, with Heraclius constantly working on their morale. They were honored men, he said, the Lord's army waging a righteous war against the pagan fire-worshippers. The next year they marched into modern-day Azerbaijan, the center of Persian Zoroastrian fire-worship. The great king had wintered there in his magnificent palace with an army 40,000 strong, and Heraclius, hoping to recover the true cross, invaded. Once again the Persians melted away, leaving the palace and the great fire temple at the mercy of the Byzantines. Heraclius destroyed them both, including the nearby town that was the birthplace of Zoroaster. Jerusalem had been avenged, but the true cross had not been recovered. The victorious army pushed on to Testaphon, the ancient capital of the Persians, but paused for the winter to enable the Empress Martina to safely deliver a child. While the army rested, Heraclius spent the time recruiting more troops from the local tribes, and the next season was finally able to annihilate the main Persian army. A relief army showed up just as the battle was ending, but tired by their long march and horrified by the carnage, they fell easy victim to the Byzantines. It was a major victory for the emperor. He had penetrated further into the heart of Persia than any Roman commander before him. King Khosros fled, and the army settled down to a deserved rest for the winter on Lake Van. The war, however, was far from over. The next season, Heraclius marched the 300 miles to the Persian capital of Dastagard, constantly shadowed by yet another Persian army. While crossing a bridge, the vanguard fell into an ambush and was cut off. 
The Persians were then distracted by looting the bodies of the dead, and Heraclius himself, though wounded several times, saved the day by cutting away across the bridge without regard for the arrows or swords coming at him. This display of courage moved even the Persian commander, who exclaimed, Look at your emperor. He fears these arrows and spears no more than would an anvil. Fortunately, by this time, the day was growing late, and with the main army able to cross, the situation was saved. Though morale remained high, it was the first defeat for the invincible army, and Heraclius had learned the lesson of overconfidence. Kosros, too, had learned a lesson, and was determined to put an end to this upstart emperor once and for all. Rallying every available soldier, he gathered a massive army, entrusting 50,000 men to a general named Shaheen to crush Heraclius, warning him that failure meant death. Then, turning to diplomacy, he contacted the Avars, who had united virtually every barbarian tribe in the Balkans, and sent Sharbaraz with another army of advisors to assist them in conquering Constantinople. They wasted no time. When Sharbaraz arrived, the Avars were already dragging their massive siege engines toward the walls of the city. Heraclius was now faced with the most difficult decision of his career. If he rushed back to the defense of the capital, he would lose his best chance of winning the war and undo all the work of the past four years, maybe more. On the other hand, if he stayed, then Constantinople might fall due to lack of defenders. His solution, characteristically, was unorthodox. He split his army into three parts. The first, perhaps 12,000 strong, headed back to defend Constantinople. The second, a similar-sized army, he entrusted to his brother Theodore and sent him to deal with Shaheen. And the third, and by far the smallest section, would stay with him, hold Armenia and the Caucasus Mountains, and invade a virtually defenseless Persia. Though he wasn't present, Heraclius had no intention of letting his capital feel abandoned, and he sent an avalanche of letters according to every detail of the defense. The result was that despite the presence of 80,000 barbarians outside the walls, morale in the city could not have been higher. Though only 12,000 cavalry defended the walls, they were assisted by every citizen in the city. Each day the patriarch would process around the walls, holding high an icon of the Virgin Mary, the protector of the city, who, it was whispered, struck terror into the hearts of the barbarians. The city certainly seemed to be under divine protection. Day after day, the siege engines battered uselessly against the walls, until the Avar king asked for a delegation to discuss the alternatives. The city representatives arrived to find the Avars already hosting three Persians, allowing them to sit while making the Byzantines stand, and generally deferring to them in everything. Humiliated by this treatment, they stormed out, and that night were fortunate enough to intercept and capture the three Persian delegates. Before they were executed, the poor captives probably told the Byzantines everything they knew about their plans, allowing the defenders to stay one step ahead of their opponents. And the very next week, a sortie from Constantinople was able to ambush and destroy the entire enemy fleet. Even worse news for the Persians was on its way. Theodore had met Shaheen in a driving hailstorm and completely crushed the Persian army. When news of the disaster reached Constantinople, the Persian and Avar armies panicked. The mighty siege engines had been useless, and every attempt at subtlety had been effortlessly repulsed. The city was under divine protection after all, and invincible. Dismantling their equipment, the army ended its siege, burned some churches, and lumbered away. When the first cautious citizens emerged from the walls, it was to find further confirmation of divine protection. Alone of all the great churches outside the city walls, the one dedicated to the Virgin Mother had not been destroyed. 
Shaheen did not survive the disaster long. Whether in despair over his failure or because he knew his life was forfeit, he committed suicide after the battle. When the news reached Kosros, he ordered the body packed into salt and brought to him. Once in his presence, he had the body whipped till it was no longer recognizable. The great king was clearly mentally unstable, and for many worried Persian nobles, it was the last straw. When the rebellion came, it found many willing adherents. Throughout that exciting year, Heraclius had seen no action whatsoever. When he heard of his brother's victory and the successful defense of Constantinople, he marched his reduced force cautiously toward the palace of the great king, intending to end the war once and for all. He was shadowed by a large Persian army with the same objective, and when they met at the ancient city of Nineveh, it was on a ground of their own choosing. There was to be no surprise here. Each side was conscious that it was fighting the decisive conflict of the war. The battle lasted for 11 hours, during which, if we believe the sources, Heraclius challenged the Persian general to single combat and killed him at the height of the fighting. Whatever the truth, by the end of the day the outcome was clear. The Byzantines had won a complete victory and virtually no Persians were left alive. It was made even sweeter several days later when they intercepted a letter from Kosros to Sharbaraz, recalling him to defend the capital. Heraclius shrewdly substituted a second letter telling the general to stay put and continued on his way having dealt with the last Persian army capable of threatening him. The Byzantines arrived at the Persian capital to find it deserted, but Heraclius was not in a forgiving mood. Everything that couldn't be taken with them was burned, and the army continued on its relentless pursuit of the Persian king. Kosros had resorted to calling on women and children to defend him, but by now no one was listening. Heraclius, deep in enemy territory with a reduced fighting force, realized it was fruitless to continue trying to overthrow a king whose subjects were obviously about to do it for him, and he at last gave the order to retreat. Returning the way he had come, he intercepted another letter from Kosros to Sharbaraz. This time, the king gave the order for his general's immediate execution for failure to come back when summoned. The Byzantines kindly passed along the letter, after adding the names of 400 other officers to it, and when the king's son rose in revolt, there was plenty of support for the revolution. Kosros was flung into a prison ominously called the Tower of Darkness, where he was given only enough food and water to prolong his agony. Then all of his children not related to the usurper were executed in front of him, and finally he was shot slowly to death with arrows. The new Persian king understood his position. He sued for peace immediately. Surrendering all the land they had conquered, all the prisoners held captive, and all the captured relics, including the true cross and instruments of the Passion. Heraclius had recovered, at a stroke, all that had been lost and more, and his victory was final. The long struggle with Persia was over. Never again would they trouble the Byzantine Empire. The Senate rapturously granted him the title of Scipio, and when he arrived in sight of the capital, it was to find the entire populace waving olive branches and lit candles. The emperor, however, did not cross into the city immediately. He waited for the true cross to be brought from Persia, following it through the Golden Gate in a procession complete with the first elephants ever seen in the city. He marched to the Hagia Sophia, and in a stirring ceremony raised it above the high altar. It seemed the dawn of a new age. From the depths of despair, Heraclius had raised the empire to new heights of glory. The true cross was enshrined, and the Lord's enemies lay scattered before it. But it was not to be. Few watching the ceremony could have failed to notice the change that had overtaken the emperor since that bright coronation morning 18 years before. 
The golden hair was reduced to a few gray strands. The shoulders were stooped, and the gait was halting. The emperor had worn himself out in the service of the empire, but the empire too was exhausted. The long, crippling war between Persia and Byzantium had been to the detriment of both. Heraclius' final victory left both empires weakened and vulnerable, awaiting only a predatory enemy to take advantage of it. And in 622, the year Heraclius had set out on campaign, that enemy had been born. That year had seen Muhammad flee from Mecca to Medina, and in five years he had unleashed the armies of Islam. Though Muhammad himself died in 632 of a fever, within a hundred years his followers were at the gates of Constantinople in the east, and within 150 miles of Paris in the west. This incredible burst of conquest had much to do with timing, and it was to the great benefit of Islam that they arrived to find both great empires of the region exhausted and near collapse. The crippled Persian Empire put up little resistance, and by 633 a Muslim force had crossed into Byzantine territory. Heraclius, meanwhile, already suffering from the disease that was to kill him, had installed the true cross in Jerusalem and found his hands full dealing with a religious controversy that had split the empire since Justinian's day. The problem was in understanding the nature of Christ. One group held that Christ had a single nature, which was both human and divine, while the other held that he had two natures, one human and one divine. Heraclius proposed a compromise. Christ had two natures, but one energy, and in a rare moment of common sense, both sides initially agreed. They were, they realized, expressing the same belief with slightly different words. All was well until the Patriarch of Jerusalem, a man named Sophronius, attacked the idea as heresy. Support for the compromise melted away just when unity was needed most. With even local areas divided, the Muslims poured into Syria, conquering Damascus and besieging Jerusalem. Though they lacked the siege engines to take the city, the modest force sent against them was annihilated. Heraclius responded by raising an army 80,000 strong and sending them into the field. The Muslims retreated into the Syrian desert, but without Heraclius to lead them, the Byzantines couldn't agree on a strategy. And so instead of attacking, they waited while the desert sun and harrying raids depleted their numbers. When they were finally goaded into action, they chose the worst possible moment, attacking in a sandstorm which blew in their faces, blinding them, and were massacred almost to a man. The way was now clear, and without hope of rescue, Damascus and Jerusalem fell. Heraclius had not participated in any of these events. The glorious soldier emperor who had so brilliantly saved the empire paused only long enough to slip into Jerusalem to remove the true cross and started on the long road to Constantinople. Having climbed to such heights, he was now forced to watch as his entire life's work was undone. Believing God to have abandoned him, he was near mental, physical, and spiritual collapse. By the time he was in sight of the walls of the capital, he had developed a terror of the water and refused to cross the Bosphorus. If the contemporary accounts are true, he was finally convinced to cross by throwing a pontoon of boats from shore to shore and lining them with branches so that the water was obscured. The obviously dying emperor was then persuaded to ride across it as if it were dry land. It was a pathetic last entrance to the city, so different than the one nine years before, and the citizens of Constantinople were quick to point out why. The problem, they whispered, was the incestuous marriage to Martina. Of the nine children she bore her husband, Four died in infancy, one had a deformed neck, and another was deaf and dumb. Clearly God had removed his favor, and Martina, never popular, became one of the most hated women in the city and was publicly mocked. The end was not far off, but for Heraclius one final humiliation remained. 
With the Muslims swarming over defenseless Egypt, word reached him that the Pope had officially condemned his single energy compromise as a heresy. Nearly paralyzed with dropsy and in agonizing pain, he formally denied having any part in it, blaming it all on his patriarch. He died a few months later in misery and shame, believing that only eternal torment awaited him. He had simply lived too long. If only he had died after the overthrow of Khosros, with the Persian Empire defeated and the True Cross restored to Jerusalem. His reign would be one of the most spectacular in the empire's history. The citizens of the empire certainly had cause to genuinely mourn him. He left the empire much stronger with a reformed and reorganized military. His civil governments laid the basis for recovery and the next 800 years of survival. But more importantly, perhaps, his reign marked another turning point. If Justinian was the last Roman emperor, then Heraclius was the first Greek one. The language and culture of the empire was no longer Latin, but Greek, and Heraclius, who prized military efficiency, swept away the old trappings of the Latin empire. He made Greek the official language, and within a generation, Latin was virtually extinct. Even the imperial titles reflected the change. Every emperor from Augustus to Heraclius was hailed as Imperator Caesar and Augustus, but after him, they were known only as Basilius, the Greek word for king. He was buried in the Church of the Holy Apostles, next to Constantine the Great, which was, after all, fitting. Without him, the empire would have fallen to the Persians, and then almost certainly to the Muslims, with consequences too numerous to imagine. Instead, the government he provided enabled Constantinople to act as a bulwark against the Islamic tide, forcing them to take the long way through Africa, overextending their lines of communication, and allowing Europe the time it needed to develop into a power capable of checking their advance. Heraclius had arrived at the hour of the empire's greatest need and devoted his life to its service. The empire owed him far more than it knew. Join me next time as I discuss Irene, the first woman emperor who ruled the empire during a time of tremendous upheaval and whose controversial reign saw the old order vanish, the medieval state arise, and the unexpected return of an emperor to the long, vacant throne of the West. Twelve Byzantine Rulers is a podcast written and recorded by Lars Brownworth, author of the book Lost to the West, The Forgotten Byzantine Empire That Rescued Western Civilization. Look for Lost to the West on Amazon.com or at your local bookstore. Visit us at 12byzantinerulers.com.